Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to gather together. We are so thankful for our teacher and for the research that he has done as we have been able to peel back information that has been so vaguely known to us, we knew it must be out there, this matter of the cities where the earliest Christian churches were established, what the cities were like, what the churches were like, who were the influences. We knew that information must have been there, but you sent us a teacher who in four weeks has opened layer after layer and inspired our minds and our hearts. And for that, we are thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. How's everyone doing today? Good. Yeah? Nice to see so many people here. All right, so working on this, of course, I looked into a lot of different cities, um, <coughs> at least the ones that had letters written to them. And ended up with Corinth. Kind of came full circle on this. There are things that I vividly remember my professor teaching me, and, and I remember a lot of the things that he taught me about Corinth, but I don't, didn't remember that or remembered them until I was doing this. <laughs> but uh, his name was William Lane, and he studied with his professor, William Barclay, and, and you can see Barclay's quoted in this. But I'm actually going to read you the part of the end of Beauty and the Beast <laughs> for my angle for the week. <laughs> and you'll see what this uh, means at the end. Now, this is Perot's version of the story. There are many versions of this story. They mostly used this one when they made the Disney. But there were two sisters, of course. Uh, Beauty had two sisters. Of course, she was the youngest. You know the way fairy tales go. And she was beautiful and nice, and they were mean. And so when she gets married and she ends up with Beast, who is not a beast, the fairy comes and says, As for you, my dear ladies... Uh, she continued, addressing Beauty's two sisters, I know your hearts and all the malice that is in them. I'm going to turn you into two statues, but you will keep your awareness beneath the stone that envelops you. You will be taken to the entrance of your sister's palace, and I can think of no better punishment for you than to witness her happiness. You will not return to your natural state until you acknowledge your faults. I fear you may have to remain statues forever. You can correct pride, anger, gluttony, and laziness, but you need a miracle to transform a heart filled with malice and envy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I read that, and you'll see that very much relates to the church at Corinth. <laughs> and it raises the question, are there some things that are harder to get over? Are there some things that are harder to stop doing? You know they're a bad idea, but... And of course, when they're my problems, they always seem to be harder than other people's problems. <laughs> so I probably have my own personal list. But Corinth had a lot of trouble getting over some things, and we'll look at that. And as what I didn't know was going to be a theme became a theme 
in this series uh, that Paul is always using analogies that make sense to the people that he's writing to. This is probably more true of this letter than any, so it's a good thing I ended with this one. All right, so that would be, um, well, do you know which goddess that is? Anybody? Aphrodite. She doesn't have the helmet that would mark her as Athena. But that's Aphrodite. Now, Corinth is the home place of Aphrodite's temple. Remember, Ephesus was the home place of Artemis. Here, but these are the things that Corinth was known for. One is the temple of Aphrodite, which is just above the city, about a four-mile hike up from the city. Um, I know I told somebody that the other day, and, and they said four miles, and I'm like, in that time, they would have not thought that was a big deal. Um, it's also known for Corinthian columns. Yes, it was a style of architecture that was invented there. They were known for their pottery. Most of the things we know, we know as Greek pottery came from Corinth. And they were known for the Isthmian Games, which that's because they were on the Isthmus, is, that's really hard to say. <laughs> Mary Isthmus. So, <laughs> Corinth was there, there were people living there from 6500 BC, they had a population of about 90,000 in 400 BC. They claimed that they were founded, actually there were two founding stories. Did you know how Canton got its name? It got its name from a 17 year old boy who liked the name Canton written on a box from China. It's always interesting to find out how towns were named. But the myth goes that it was founded by Corinthus, a descendant of the god Aelius, the son, and another myth says that it was Ephira, the daughter of the titan Oceanus. All right, so it was ruled at first by some members of the, some Dorians. Funny that later we have Doric architecture and Corinthian architecture. So it was ruled by Dorians for a few centuries. And then it was written, they call it the rule of the, of the tyrants, which sounds really pleasant. Uh, so there were a series of tyrants that ruled it. And uh, one of them built uh, temples to Apollo and Poseidon, so it became a center of that. And there's evidence it was destroyed about 2000 BC. One thing humbling about all of this is that many of these places are gone now. You know, we think we're so important now, and you kind of wonder, don't you? <laughs> what will be left in the future of New York? What will be left in the future of the places we think are just the center of the world? Corinth had a temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. She had a thousand hitaras, temple prostitutes. They served the wealthy merchants and powerful officials who frequented the city. And Laos was one of the most famous. She cost so much money that Horace said, not everyone is able to go to Corinth. So unlike Las Vegas, <laughs> which makes everything cheaper, apparently it was very expensive to go to Corinth but I think very comparable to Las Vegas of its day. And here are the different styles of architecture that developed the Doric, the Ionic, and the Corinthian. You can see uh, this was seen as sort of a compromise between the two. Uh, during, so during this time in the classical era, Corinth developed its own style of architecture. The Doric was similar to the Spartans, the Ionic similar to the Athenian style, and Corinthian style was more like that. 
So one of the things that's a little surprising about this city, even though it becomes uh, pretty much a hub of debauchery and known for that across the Mediterranean, at the same time it's developing the most beautiful pottery, the most beautiful architecture in the Mediterranean. Figure out that mystery. All right, so here's some of their pottery. You can see it is just, I looked at a lot of it. It's astoundingly beautiful. Uh, it's the black figure painting technique that you're probably familiar with is Greek pottery. It imitates Middle Eastern styles and usually has human figures and sometimes mythical scenes as you can see here and animals. And a lot of times they were just very small bottles uh, for scent or oil. All right, in 27 BC, the southern regions of Greece were detached from Macedonia and or reorganized as the province of Achaia by the Romans. The smaller towns were abandoned and their populations were concentrated into strategically placed cities. Corinth was one of these centers and was chosen as the capital. And one of the reasons it was the capital relates to my background. I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, and um, there were waterfalls right where Louisville is in the Ohio River. It's the only waterfalls in the Ohio River. And because of that, you had to take everything out, put it across as a place called Portage. <laughs> <laughs> and you took everything out of the boats and you put them back down. So people made a lot of money off of getting things off of boats, putting it in, the, putting them back into other boats until they built the locks. And a similar thing happens here. This was there and eventually though in the 1800s they built a canal and then it was so small, it became useless immediately. <laughs> but you saved a 200 mile trip by cutting through there, also a very dangerous trip. And it was also the place of the Isthmian Games. Today we only know the Olympic Games, but there were, three there were at least three major games, the Pythian Games in the Pythian area, the Isthmian Games, of course, in the Isthmus of Corinth, and then the Olympic Games in Olympus. The Olympus Games, just like now, happened every four years. The Isthmian Games happened the year before and the year after, and the Pythian Games were on the third. So there were almost always some kind of games going on. All right, so the remnants now of the, of the stadiums where events would happen all around there. It was dedicated to the sea god Poseidon and was held in the spring of the fourth years of the Olympiad. There you go, I just said that. <coughs> sanctuary of the Isthmus of Corinth. And uh, it was attributed to Sisyphus, the king of Corinth, that Theseus is the first official times. And the first recorded, you know, historical one was in 582 BC. Um, interestingly enough, though, I shared this with someone this morning, and, and uh, they found this interesting. It included music and poetry contests. And women were involved in those. Women could not participate in the athletic games, but they were involved in the musical and poetical contest. I'd like to see that brought back, wouldn't you? The Olympic Games can be traced to 70, and just as a background, the Olympic Games go further back to 776 BC. And they happened, and all of the games ended thanks to Emperor Theodosius, who decreed in 390. 3 AD that they were pagan practices and got rid of them all. All right, so this is kind of what Corinth looked like from the air, <laughs> from a helicopter that didn't exist. 
Um, and this would just be, of course, city center. There would be houses all around there and everything. Okay, so you can see that they had a, a place of gathering to hear uh, talks, and then they had a stadium, a theater for plays. There was a, uh, this, it was centered on the Temple of Apollo, and then up here was um, the other temple. The Bema, a lot of people think this is where Paul was questioned, uh, but actually most scholars don't. People get their picture taken there saying, you know, this is where Paul was questioned, but it's probably not where he was questioned. As usual, history gets things a little messed up. So like I said, they would, ships would dock, and then uh, in first century AD, they even had the idea of putting in um, a canal, but they gave up pretty quickly. In 1893, they built one, but it was too narrow for modern ships. So as you can see, rather than go around here to go to Italy from uh, you know, maybe Turkey or over in this area or this side, they would just port through there. All right, and just like today, if you have a place that's right in the middle of trade, is it going to be wealthy? That's why New York is there. <laughs> it was right in the middle of everything. And up on the hill, was a absolutely huge and gorgeous temple to Aphrodite. All right. But by the time we get to Paul's time, it was a Roman colony only. Why is that? Well, we have from Strabo, uh, the geographer, historian. Now, after Corinth had remained deserted for a long time, it was destroyed by the Romans earlier. It was restored again because of its favorable position by the deified Caesar who colonized it with people belonging the most part to the freedmen class. Corinth is no longer inhabited by any of the old Corinthians but by colonists sent out by Romans. It was recorded by another historian. After the Romans built the new city in its place, it made it the provincial capital of Greece in 44 BC. The population was between 100,000 and 700,000. I'm finding the 700 a little hard to believe, but it grew fast. So Paul, at Corinth at the time of Paul was not a Greek city but a Roman colony. Now that isn't to say that it doesn't have all the Greek traditions and everything, but things had changed. It had been destroyed in 146 BC. And he left the temples, but he destroyed everything else and he killed all the people because they sided against the Romans. It's funny what goes for normal in the ancient world. You know what I'm saying? You didn't side with us, so they just kill everybody. Wow. I mean, we get angry when there's just a little riot and a few people get killed, you know? Yeah. I don't know, but it, yeah, it could have been like 100,000 people. I don't, I don't know. <coughs> now, I'm sure a lot of people ran. <laughs> when they heard the Romans were coming. <laughs> so I don't know how many escaped. Um, but anyway, by the time of Paul gets there, it is, I like that it is a Roman boom town. <laughs> it was full of, as it, as it says, officials, military veterans, traders, mariners from the west and east, hucksters, prostitutes, and religious charlatans. It does sound like New York. <laughs> or maybe L.A. Uh, so... Statue of Emperor, and here's some statues that actually are taken from Corinth. They do like they usually do to protect them. They put them in museums. Now, this guy went there in the second century AD, and he saw a uh, marketplace, temples to Artemis, Dionysus, Poseidon, Apollo, Aphrodite, Athena, Tiki, 
Hermes, Zeus, a sanctuary to all the gods, just to make sure everything was covered. And he saw gilded chariots of the sun god at the gates to Helios and Phaeton, uh, bronzes of Hercules and Hermes. He saw, by the theater, he saw the Zeus Capitolimus, a temple dedicated to Asclepius. We'll see more about that in a minute. So, but on the summit of the Acrocorinth, the mountain outside, the famed temple of Aphrodite was still there. All right, so by Paul's time it had fallen to ruin, but as the successors of its thousand called prostitutes continued to plow the profession, so not everybody died. It seems like the prostitutes probably made it through. Now, we have to understand, too, that sacred prostitutes are not just street prostitutes. Do we all understand that? That their belief was that for a sacred prostitute, if you had sexual union with her, you were having union with the goddess. We understand that? It sounds a little odd, but Paul's actually going to use that idea in his letter. <laughs> you kind of wonder who came up with that. I don't know. <laughs> All right, so it was a city catering to sailors and traveling salesmen. <laughs> At this time, to call someone a Corinthian lass, I don't, I find it hard to believe they used the word lass, but that's what this person said. A Corinthian girl was to impugn her morals. And uh, I think that's supposed to be Paul. So Paul was kind of attracted to go there because it was like the worst place. Where else would you go? So Corinthians... I was practicing this. Corinthiazestai means to live like a Corinthian. Probably won't become a part of your dialect. It says to live a life of drunken debauchery. And when Corinthians were depicted in plays, they were depicted as drunks. All right. Over time, it, it declined. It was destroyed. It was largely destroyed by earthquakes. It's amazing how many cities were destroyed by earthquakes. It kind of seems a little scary as well. But uh, when it was rebuilt, there were four churches located there, so the church survives in a way. At least the Christian church has a presence there. And then from the 6th century on, it declined. It was finally destroyed. Another earthquake, and then Sicilian Normans. I didn't even know that group of people existed, existed but they plundered it at 1147. And that was pretty much the end of Corinth. So what about Paul in Corinth? Traditionally, the church in Corinth was founded by Paul, making it an apostolic see. Under the Romans, Corinth was rebuilt as a major city. It had a population, mixed population of Romans, Greeks, and Jews. Money was to be made, so people came. He visited around 51 or 52. Gallio, the brother of Seneca, the famous philosopher in Rome, was proconsul. He lived there for 18 months, and he became acquainted with Priscilla and Aquila, with whom he worked and traveled. And this is an interesting little side note. Gallio's name was Lucius Junius Gallio Ananias. And I can't get myself to say it. Um, but it can be accurately dated, and that's the only uh, one of the few links to historical persons that help us to understand when Paul did what. So because we have that fact, we can kind of figure out when he did other things. Does that make sense? Actually, when Paul writes the letter to Romans, he's in Corinth. So again, there's another 
kind of overlay and we can get some things placed in history. All right, so Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla applied their trade as tent makers. I remember this particularly about my teacher. He said, because we were uh, all thinking the same thing, like how many tents do you need in Corinth? But he said people misunderstand now that they were leather and cloth workers, so they would have done all different kinds of things, not just make tents, but it's the name of the profession. I tried to look up some things about that, but people got so excited about Paul being a tent maker that it was very hard to find anything about what the actual profession was about. And it also became a name for if you uh, work and minister. Yes, and, and don't just take money from the church, but work and then basically minister for free, which is what he tried to do. But tent makers were leather and cloth workers, so they, they would have had a lot to do in that area. Uh, they also did like waterproofing of things, and so um, they would work with sails and things like that that would be more necessary in that kind of city. All right, so the economy, the economy was based uh, on trade and commerce, but they also had orchards and vineyards. What I want to see is, you know, they're still producing pottery. There's a whole section of the city that produces the Corinthian pottery and bronze metal works. So hang on to that. And hang on to this. Since uh, they've been studying since 1896 the area, and they found many great buildings were being reconstructed at the time Paul would have been there. Lots of construction going on would have been kind of like my visit, recent visit to China, the building everywhere, everything's under construction. All right, so here we go. This is from Acts 18. Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. So this is when he actually meets them. We've seen them in some of the other sessions. Because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said, Your blood be on your heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on I go to the Gentiles. This is not the only place he does that, as we've seen. When Paul left the synagogue, he went and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. Oh, that was just, I'm sorry, I read that like it was going to go further. Crispus, the synagogue leader, his entire household believed in God, and many Corinthians had heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. As we've seen in some of the other stories, the reason Paul leaves <laughs> these towns. <laughs> when last week, he just got beaten, uh, some say beaten to death and resurrected. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. And there we go. While Gallio, as we just learned, was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. By the way, Gallio hated Corinth, so it would have been kind of unusual for him to be there, but he would have done a tour He's, he's, the, it, he's not necessarily based in Corinth, but he's there according to this. This man is, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about your words 
about words and names in your own law. Settle them out of yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. It's a little embarrassing that, you know, Paul has this chance <laughs> to speak to the proconsul. And he's just, uh, no. But we learn a whole lot about the Roman attitude toward Christianity at this time. Yes, most of the leaders would have thought Christianity was a nuisance, but it was kind of a Jewish problem. The further Christianity distinguished itself from Judaism, as you all know, the more problematic it became. So at this point, they're still kind of safely behind the curtain of Judaism. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, <laughs> the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. Crowds just do these things, don't they? But later on, when you see the letter that Paul writes, he says he includes Sosthenes in his address. Sosthenes is apparently with him. The synagogue leader and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. So we do get this really interesting portrait of Roman thoughts about Christianity. And this explains a lot about when you go back and you try to find Roman references to Christianity, they're lacking. At this point, they're not on the radar. Paul stayed in Corinth for some time, then he left the brothers and sisters. See how in Acts they always include the women? So people need to be reminded of that these days. And sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. So they went with him. All right. Now, here's some historical things just for the heck of it as we go along. A lot of people say that he was tried at the Bema, which would be the step of judgment at the time. They also had the Bulaterion, which would be a, a public assembly house, um, things in the in Greek cities, even though this is a Roman colony, it has the Greek tradition of things are decided in the assembly. Um, so a lot of things are left alone. The proconsul would really not have much to do with that sort of thing. <coughs> but I also wanted you to, to see that, um, you know, they had uh, restaurants and bars, they had pits with cold fruits, uh, fed with cold spring water, they kept wine cool. They had small temples to policy Venus, or we already saw that. But the thing I want you to see is they had what? A pottery industrial area. So they're still making the pottery. And they had uh, this place called, this is Asclepium, from Asclepius, the god of healing. They had a whole complex dedicated to that for bathing, exercise, and dining. So very progressive uh, city for its time. Isn't it an odd mix of things? It's known for drunken debauchery and thousands of prostitutes at the same time, beautiful architecture, amazing pottery. It's kind of like uh, everything's too extreme in this city. Again, I'm reminded of modern cities like New York. Everything's too extreme. The south of the theater and temple of Apollo are, are uh, several other buildings. Uh, there was a judicial headquarters near the basilica, and this is where they think Paul was probably put on trial. Well, that Paul didn't get the chance to speak. <laughs> okay, also of historic concern, were there Jews actually there? Um, it says in Acts that there were, and, and the only evidence we have is from the fourth century, so much later, that there was a synagogue there. So at least we know there was a enough of a Jewish presence to have a synagogue by the fourth century. All right, Asclepius. This is very interesting, and you'll see why later. Um, well, let me just do one more thing, and you'll see why it's interesting. 
Now, that kind of freaked me out a little bit when I first saw that. It looked like human body parts, <laughs> and they are. Um, but as a part of the worship of going, going to the center of Asclepius is that if you had an aching, you know, you wanted your arm to be healed, you make a terracotta arm to give as like an offering in hopes to be healed. You can see here's all the different body parts that people had problems with, and they still have them now. Um, but you'll see later on when he makes references to, to we have this, that God lives in pots of clay. You can't help but think, hmm. He's relating a lot to there. So that's Asclepius. We still have uh, the symbol of medicine based on a version of his staff, the snake wrapped around this, the staff. So the Asclepion was a place where people came to be healed of their diseases, included temples, dining rooms, bathing facilities, dormitories, and other structures. He was a deified Greek physician. The symbol of Asclepius as an, as an entwined stake was just still the modern medical symbol. All right, another thing of interest, and you get various reactions to this on the internet, but it is, it's just darn interesting that uh, there Archaeologists have found, well, here's what it says. In, in Romans, Paul mentions that uh, Erastus, the city treasurer, is with him, and he says hello to the Romans. And Erastus would be the city treasurer of Corinth, because that's where he is when he writes the letter. And he's mentioned again in 2 Timothy as being the Corinthian treasurer. So interestingly enough, they found on the pavement a quotation. Erastus, in return for his adelship, laid this pavement at his own expense. Now, who knows? It was a fairly common name, but it dates from exactly the right time period. Might have some physical evidence of this Erastus guy. Could be. So, we'll back up. We see that there is some just, you know, extra biblical evidence of Paul, or at least of the people that are mentioned in the story, having been there. So Paul most likely left Corinth about the fall of 51 CE, and he returned again to Asia on his third journey. This time he settled down in Ephesus for three years, so that previous talk that we already did. So, we know there was contact between Corinth and Paul because he mentions a previous letter that he wrote in 1 Corinthians 5.9. And he had told them not to hang out with immoral people, and they thought, well, that's impossible in Corinth. <laughs> and he writes to say, I don't mean immoral people, I mean immoral believers. Don't, don't tolerate someone doing immoral things and also saying that they're a believer. Okay, so we know there was a previous letter. It'd be interesting to have that. We don't have it. And that's what that says. All right, so the second part of his letter, he, he says that he has news from, uh, he says, Chloe's house. We don't know much else about who that was. Um, but we do see, again, evidence that women were leaders in the church and that church meetings were happening still in houses, and, and one of them was probably Chloe. Um, the divisions arising among Corinthian believers, and uh, it includes other problems like uh, attitudes toward the apostles, uh, the apostles, the apostles, 
incestuous behavior and lawsuits between Christians. And then Paul has another section where he seems to be answering issues raised by the entire congregation. So the letter is set up to be responses to different things. The misunderstood letter, the news he has from Chloe's house, and then some questions that seem to be in some kind of letter coming to him, church questions, like people, do we have any questions for Paul? We're sending a letter, that kind of thing. All right, he talks about opposition, but it, you know, I like it that I don't have to go down any of the opposition things. I don't have to talk about Judaizers or any of those other things today, because apparently, since this was Corinth, they were all there. Everybody I've talked about so far and more, because <laughs> it says here, there were Jews that were resisting. There were proto-Gnostics saying that Christianity was a mystical mystery religion. There were libertines who thought that Christianity was an opportunity to do anything you wanted to do. There were ascetics who thought the opposite Christianity meant giving up everything and withdrawing from the world. There were ecstatics who thought that Christianity was all about ecstatic experience. There were eschatologists saying that the end of the world is nigh. <laughs> Anti-resurrectionists saying that no, it's not going to happen. We're not all going to be raised. Okay, so you can imagine you've got a city like this drawing so many different kinds of people. You're going to get a lot of factions, but not even enough to have factions. You're just going to, Paul is dealing with a nightmare. And you can tell in the letter when you read it, it's not like, oh, foolish Galatians. He's very specific there. You doing this, and just don't do that. In the Corinthian letters, like, and this, and this, and what about this? And then what's up with that? I mean, you can read it, and he's like, oh my gosh, what is he dealing with here? The church is a mess. So let's try to make some sense out of the mess. I think he saw five key problems, and that's, I don't know, there are more, I guess, but I'm trying to lump them together at least. And then I think he used five analogies to respond to those problems. All right, so first one would be one you would expect. How are you going to live a pure life in that kind of a city? Where normal is debauchery. You know what I'm saying? There isn't, uh, it's not like uh, we have in the United States where there's kind of a traditional base of people who live, you know, kind of conservative lives and then there's another more liberal population or whatever. There are problems between those populations, but it's not like you're living in a, almost just a completely libertine city. So it'd be very difficult. Who are your role models and, and what are you gonna do? So he uh, uses the food body analogy, and it's actually their analogy. They, they say uh, food is meant for the body, I mean food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach's meant for food, so then by analogy, what are your private parts made for? Anyway, there you go. So if your private parts are made for sex, then you know, that's, that's what they're made for, so why not use them? So they're making that, and so he has to take that same analogy and flip it around and say something else. It's a logical analogy. All right, he also, they're failing to follow his leadership of teachings. They've actually taken on new teachers that are contradicting what he said. He uses the image of the master builder. I was a master builder. Now notice how these all relate to their situation. 
They live in a city where you eat food offered to idols and that you sleep with women in order to obtain access to the goddess. Yes, that's normal in their world. So the food body analogy relates directly to their world, the master builder, because they're building. Buildings and temples and things are going up right as he speaks. All right, they're also losing sight of the goal, which is living for Jesus' return. Paul, as you know, in his early letters, expects Jesus to return in his lifetime. So he's, pretty, he's telling everybody, we've got to be ready. He's going to be here any minute. Later on, he shifts a bit as he realizes, well, might not be my generation. <laughs> okay, but he's still, uh, so he explains a lot of things about the return of Christ. And he uses the image of running the race. Because this is the home of the Isthmian Games. All right, so another problem is what is our role as vessels of the divine? And he uses the idea of clay pots. And I, I can vividly remember my teacher kind of acting like he was Paul walking through the city. Oh, they're building. Probably impressed. Really, wow, look at the beautiful architecture. And look at this pottery. You know, but all the time kind of storing up, hey, there's some ways I might be able to reach them. And then a misunderstanding of love because of Aphrodite worship. Yes, if that's what you think love is, you got a long way to go in terms of the Christian idea. So there you go, 1 Corinthians 13. Redefine love. All right, so let's look at each one. Purity in, impu in an impure environment. He says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I sometimes want to say that to Charlie Hebdo. Like, you have the right to publish this. <laughs> That's my feeling. <laughs> and it reveals something about me. I know I have the right to do a lot of things, but you have to use a little judgment, you know? But not everything is beneficial. So he's giving them a thing. You have the right to do anything, but tr you should do what? Just beneficial things. I have the right to do anything, but he says, but I won't be mastered by anything. You say food is for the stomach, stomach for food, and, but he says, but God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, the Lord for the body. I wish he would have quoted that, give Caesar what Caesar's, at that time he might not have known that particular phrase, but that's what Jesus meant, right? Give Caesar the image, his image, but you're God's image, so give yourself to God. By power God raised him from the dead, he will raise us also. Here we go. Do you not know your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Now this makes more sense, doesn't it? This is what normally they would think, this is how you have communion with God. Never do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in her body. For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. For whoever is united with the Lord has become one with him in spirit. So he unabashedly uses the idea, doesn't he, of uniting your body with, the God, with God, he uses the same idea, but he just switches it over to say this is a spiritual union and that it's not based on a physical union. Whoever is united with the Lord become one with them in spirit. Flee sexual immorality. All of the sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? This again makes sense. What is their city full of? 
chock full of temples. Who is in you, whom you received from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. All right, so he takes basically their belief and shows it's wrong-headed, but metaphorically onto something. It's kind of a daring move in a lot of ways. All right, city's under construction. In chapter 3, he says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation, which he probably saw buildings right being built, laying foundations were probably very common to them, as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each of you should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, I wish I could reference the three little pig stories, but I don't think it goes back that far. (laughs) But it's right there, isn't it? Their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. And here he's talking about the day of the return of Jesus which he thinks will happen very soon. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. The world will never be destroyed by water, but now it's going to be sifted by fire. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward, but if it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, and yet will be saved. I like that he adds that. (laughs) God won't kill the builder, but you're going to lose the building, even though as only one escaping through the flames. So again, very vivid analogy related to their experience. What about the Isthmian games? I was very surprised what they won when I looked it up. 1 Corinthians 9.24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? So this is going to make a lot of sense to them, isn't it? Because they're having what that would amount to every two years, having the games there. Um, Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. So he's doubling back on that argument, self-control. How do athletes win? They don't win by, you know, smoking cigarettes and drinking all the time, do they? It kills me when they have athletes and they do McDonald's commercials. I'm going to sit there like, right. I'm sure you're stuffing a Big Mac in there all the time. That's not the way you win. (laughs) The breakfast of champions. By the way, let me just say, last time I began with Croatia and the breakfast of beer, cigarettes, and uh, coffee, I was not trying to say anything negative about Croatians. I loved Croatia. I loved the people there. It was just meant as what it was, a joke. And I don't think everybody there has that for breakfast either. I'm sure they have Wheaties and things too. All right. I felt bad about that later, though. I knew if my Croatian friend ever heard that, she'd be like, what? (laughs) <laughs> All right. Till the 5th century B.C., the winners of the Isthmian Games received a wreath of celery. They used to think celery was the food of the gods. It was expensive. It was hard to get. If you watch uh, British movies about the aristocracy, you, how many, if you notice, if they've carefully done their research, often they'll be standing there eating celery. <laughs> like, why was some rich guy... Well. Today we were out and uh, we didn't do anything all day because that's what we do with the aristocracy. We're going to have a fox hunt and they'll eat their celery. Well, I and, and they imitated this some in, in early American movies too. The rich people eat celery. That so it was associated with being rich. Weird by today's standards because today it's really a 
you know, it's almost a food you're like, why do we even bother? But and then later on, they changed it to pine leaves, and so that they would have put down a little pine crown on their head because that was pine was a, a tree sacred to Poseidon. All right, so the victors could also be honored with a statue or an ode, which is good news because the pine thing wouldn't last very long. And you also get 100 drachmas, which was huge money at the time. All right, another theme, jars of clay. Now, this is in 2 Corinthians. Mostly I stuck to first because just I was trying to keep my life simple and keep it simpler for you. But I had to sneak over here because he says this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. There you go. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. In fact, he's not really saying that they are jars of clay as he's saying he is. But the, You'll see. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crossed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. We who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, apostles, but life is at work in you. So we're purposely being clay vessels, we're not that important. What's important is what's in the, the vase. Um, I think it's interesting in China and Taoism, they have si very similar thoughts that relate to this and, and make it make more sense. The Taoists pretty much ask the question, well, what makes a door a door? And we're like, well, I don't know. It's got wood and uh, hinges. And, uh, but the answer in Taoism is the space. Ah, what makes a vase a vase? Not the clay. The space, the use. Yes? What do you need a window for? Light. <laughs> so it isn't the window that makes the window, it's the space. It's not the door that makes the door. Same idea here. What makes the clay pot valuable? Not the clay pot. The space. The, its ability to hold something. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? All right, but in order to go further and talk about Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, I wanted to look at Greek conceptions of love because these would have been pretty much Mediterranean-based conceptions of love mixed in with some other beliefs. But. So, of course, we, as we know, Aphrodite is the goddess of? All right, so she's the goddess of love, beauty, pleasure, and procreation. Her Roman equivalent is the goddess Venus. Uh, she's associated with Astarte, and uh, she was born when Cronus cut off Uranus's genitals and threw them into the sea, and the sea foam, Aphros, became Aphrodite. It's also the source of our month, April. It's just Aphrodite, given a while, said differently. Aphrodite had a festival of her own called Aphrodisia. Ah, there you go. Celebrated all over Greece, but particularly where? Athens and Corinth. You can imagine, money was to be made. And Corinth, intercourse with her priestesses was considered a method of worshiping Aphrodite. Aphrodite was associated with and often depicted with dolphins, doves, swans, pomegranates, and lime trees. All right, so this is one of their ideas about love. There's another one. In fact, many, actually. 
There was no concept in ancient Greece equivalent to the modern conception of sexual preference. It was assumed that a person would have both hetero and homosexual responses at different times. Evidence for same-sex attraction and behaviors is more abundant for men than women. Both romantic love and sexual passion between men were considered normal and under some circumstances healthy or admirable. The most common male-male relationship was pederista, pederastia, a socially acknowledged institution in which the mature male, erastes, the active lover bonded with her mentor to teenage youth, Aromanos, the erotic man, the passive lover, or the bais, which would be a boy understood as endearment and not necessarily a category of age. All right, so if you're talking to a world where the, these two things are what sexuality and love is, you got a long way to go if you're going to try to talk to them about other ways to look at love. As you also probably already know, there were different words in Greek for love. So there was agape, which is a pure ideal kind of love. Uh, there was eros, the passionate love. And of course, these terms are used interchangeably. And in fact, agape is used for, all, is for love, period, in modern Greek. There was phileo. It's a, it's a dispassionate love. It's loyalty to friends, family, etc which you've probably heard of, Philadelphia and all of that. Storge, which was just natural affection like you just feel for your children. I like it that they had words for all of these things. It's a lot clearer, I think. And then they had something called Zania, which is actually a city in Ohio, <laughs> a town in Ohio, whatever it is. Uh, don't they call it, what do they call it, Zenia or something? They would have said Zania at the time. Zania is hospitality, to show love and affection towards strangers and foreigners. It's a wonderful concept. I wish we'd have kept all of these in some level. Um, much clearer. All right, but you're thinking, okay, this is mostly a Roman colony. What did the Romans think of love? Well, it's not much better. Romans said, amo, I love amare, to love, amans, a lover, amator, a professional lover, Amica, a girlfriend, but also used of a prostitute. That's weak. The Romans used amare both in affectionate sense as well as romantic. And then the noun amor is actually an anagram of Rome, Roma. So it's the city of love. How about that? And the plural form indicates love affairs or sexual adventures. Amicus is a friend, and amikita is a friendship. So, Paul has a long way to go. What does he use? Of course, you probably already know. He uses agape. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. If I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all possessed to the poor and over my body to the hardship, I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. So, I'm sure you're very familiar with this, and if I had more time, I'd read it all the way through. But his point is, and I think this is the crowning point of what he's trying to say, and why 1 Corinthians is so powerful, is because what is the biggest problem? Because they really just don't have a good idea what love is. All right. Did it work? Clement of Rome wrote a letter to the Romans. It was written about the time of the book of Revelation, and it 
might have made it into the New Testament time period-wise, but it didn't. <coughs> he writes to the Corinthians, and we'll just skip down. For this reason, righteousness and peace are now far departed from you, inasmuch as everyone abandons their fear of God and has become blind in his faith, neither walks in the ordinance of his appointment, nor acts a part of becoming a Christian, but walks after his own wicked lust, resuming the practice of an unrighteous and ungodly envy. Ah, the thing I read from Beauty and the Beast by which death itself entered into the world. So, I wish I could say the Corinthian church learned their lesson, but apparently about 40, 50 years later, still struggling with similar issues. All right, so here's my, here are my conclusions. Paul uses analogies that relate intimately to the Corinthian context in a way that I think you can't find as much in other letters. Concerning purity, he uses their own words, food for the stomach, stomach for food, and he changes their analogy. Say their bodies were made for Christ. Concerning the need to follow his teaching, he implores them to be wise builders. They build carefully on the foundation he laid. To perceive and be disciplined, he tells them to think of the image of the runners in the Isthmian games. Concerning the power of God within us, he uses an analogy of Corinthian pottery. And maybe even the terracotta limbs, associations they would have had with pottery. And there's in the love he resists the broader Roman and Greek concepts by highlighting and defining, redefining, I think, in a lot of ways, the Greek term agape. So there we go. He uses everything that made Corinthian culture what it was and repurposes it toward his own ends. And there you go. Thanks. Yeah, I think there's been long association with artistic people in debauchery, so I don't think it's a big stretch in some ways. Yeah, I almost put, uh, I think one of the titles of the slide was Vegas with Temples, and that was, that was pretty close. It's pretty much Las Vegas in a lot of ways. So I can imagine trying to run a church in Las Vegas. It'd be interesting, wouldn't it? What's that? I mean, That's true. Where money is to be made, you'll find all of these things, right? You'll find talented people making beautiful things, and you'll find drunks. It's just how the world works, isn't it? Lots of money there, Especially, particularly when you're talking sailors. <laughs> sailors have always been known. <laughs> for having a good time when they hit port. You can imagine back then how long it was before they got to port and how lonely it was to be on one of those stupid boats. They were tiny by today's standards. We have bigger boats on Lake Erie. Yeah, that's in Athens. Well, now, I don't understand that. All these gods had some name, purpose. It perpetrated everything in their 
culture, and then all of a sudden we got this one of which he says that's Jesus, right? And yeah. Where did they come up with that idea of an unknown God? They believed there were so many different gods, and all the gods had different powers that you didn't want to make the mistake of not giving allegiance to a god. So to cover your base, you do what they did, which is to build one place for all gods. It also makes sense in the other way, in the sense that if you were a stranger and you had your own god and you're in this city and you don't see your place of worship, you have that. Yes, so the unknown God would be for your God. Yes, so both directions. Make, keeping all your options. What is it? There's a guy in uh, the movie The Mummy, and he has symbols for Christianity and Islam and everything hanging around his neck, and he just picks up, <laughs> when he's in trouble, he just prays to each one. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of like that idea in some ways. And in other ways, it's kind of making sure that other people feel more welcome by having a place for them to go. Yeah, a temple to all gods. Yeah. I like that you have lifted that 13th chapter, uh, this great chapter of love, which almost seems out of place because he's, he gets so focused <coughs> in that beautiful poetic chapter, and he, in a sense, is setting aside all of the other problems. And if we read Paul's own accounts of part of his own biography, when his moment of conversion his testimony, as, 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 as he's written, he has this encounter with Jesus and Jesus' spirit, and he spends three days blind, and he takes instruction. I like to think of it as having his hard drive completely reformatted yeah. so that he would become God's teacher and evangelist. So this chapter, 13, comports so well with Jesus' teaching. What is the greatest commandment? Right. The question is put to Jesus. And half of that is to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if we truly could do that, that we wouldn't need the Ten Commandments. Right. I wouldn't covet my, anything my neighbor has if I truly loved him as well as I love myself. I wouldn't lie about him if I truly loved him as well as I love myself. Right. So Paul is laying it right at the of Jesus, all of these other problems that, that happened in Corinth, we wouldn't need teaching on those subjects if we truly had Christian love or Jesus' definition of love, agape love, right. to, to, to control our lives. The, one of the things that most people believe is that Paul uh, either wrote that elsewhere and put it in because it is really compact and refined in a way that you don't find in a letter. Uh, the other is that somebody else, or it could have been part of some Christian literature, and he's quoting it there, at the time they didn't often attribute things that were, it, it may be unattributable at that point, author unknown kind of thing. Um, the language seems to reflect his own turns, but um, it made more sense to me to think, why did he, why is that in this letter? It was almost like he, he did the same thing. I'm talking about all these dumb problems. If you just loved, you know, you have the signs of being the church because you have teachers and, and you know, have, you have the signs of the spirit moving in your church, but if you don't have love, what's it worth? Yeah. <laughs> that one's tricky, isn't it? 
Because I've, some people treat themselves worse than they do anyone else. A lot of people do. So yeah, as, as you treat yourself is, is a tricky one. But I think, I don't usually lie to myself, but I've been known to. So, <laughs> I know, I, I actually wanted to do a talk one time on, uh, and I wanted to title it, First, I Lied to Me. Because there have been times that I think that I've lied to someone else about something, but it's because I fooled myself. And I really believed my own nonsense. And then later on, I realized I'm just an idiot. So loving as yourself is a tricky one. That's sort of assuming that we do love ourselves. In some sense, we do, because we don't go without meals and things like that. But in other senses, yeah, I don't know. If you're stuffing yourself full of hamburgers and slugging down 20 beers a day, I don't know if you're loving yourself. Once again, I feel privileged to have Dr. Lloyd here. I'm going to say this. Keith, you're our friend. We hope to have you back again. For the entire room, if you would like to once again express your appreciation, I would appreciate it. Well, please come back next year with us. And next week, we start with Dr. Greg Lenville. In a way, we're privileged to have this background. Greg's going to start a study uh, basically between Acts 9 and Acts 20. We'll have the opportunity to explore Paul and his discipleship with Barnabas, or Barnabas's discipleship with Paul, uh, leadership and discipling principles for the 21st century. And again, predominantly in Acts, and you've got the background set now for that. And I, I feel like this is going to be a great carryover. So please come back, enjoy the next series with us. You're welcome.